Wednesday, September 29th, 1982, is a day etched into the history of Chicago and the state of Illinois for all the wrong reasons. Real Crime presents The Tylenol Murders. What would otherwise have been an average midweek day in the Windy City and surrounding metropolitan area ended in mass murder, panic and widespread disbelief. Seven random victims died after ingesting capsules of extra-strength Tylenol that had been deliberately laced with lethal cyanide. In an act of chilling cruelty, an anonymous figure had placed the contaminated bottles of the popular over-the-counter painkiller onto the shelves of numerous stores across the metropolitan district, leaving the pill-popping local population to unwittingly enter a game of Russian roulette. In the days before social media and rolling 24-hour news, it took time for the individual authorities involved with each case to first ascertain what was causing people to drop dead and then to connect the dots, painting a horrifying picture of what had happened. Welcome to The Real Crime Podcast with me, Ben. And me, Tanita. What are we talking about today, Tanita? We've got the Tylenol murders today. What do you like most? The, the one uh, element of the Tylenol murder case that engages you the most, Tanita? I think the one element that engages me the most is the fact that there isn't just one element. There are so many parts to this. There's the who, the what, the why, the where, the when. It is just endless question after question. It's almost, you could fall down the rabbit hole with this one. And mm. I think that, to me, is what makes this such an exciting case. There were a lot of different suspects and a lot of possible motives. And the the authorities, like, got practically nowhere. Um, and they were they were clutching at straws with, with the arrests they made. Yeah. Um, they even suspected the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. Uh, there, there's a suggestion that it was uh, an attack on the, on, attack on the state... Um, that it was an attack on Big Pharma. It could have been uh, a psychopath on a, on a power trip, just randomly killing people. And who's to say it was just one person? Who's to say it wasn't a group of people? Exactly, yeah. And I mean, I think because if you look at other cold cases, sometimes they've always got somebody in the back of their mind who it's more than likely they think they're a potential suspect. But with this one, there's no one person they can really pin down mm. and say, we think it was them, but we couldn't prove it, or they died, or literally nobody. And, and there's also uh, a suggestion of a, of a cover-up by Johnson & Johnson, suggested by uh, a certain ex-employee, which he wrote about in, in, in his book. We'll discuss that later anyway. So let's hear about how each murder case unfolded. At 6.30am on the morning of the 29th in Elk Grove Village, northeast Illinois, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman awoke feeling ill. Her parents decided to keep the young girl off school and Mary took some extra-strength Tylenol to help with her ailments. In an interview given to Chicago magazine in 2012, on the 30th anniversary of the killings, Mary's father Dennis stated that, I heard her go into the bathroom, I heard the door close, 
Then I heard something drop. After asking if she was okay but getting no reply from Mary, Dennis opened the bathroom door and found his daughter unconscious on the floor. Unable to rouse Mary, the Kellermans called 911 and requested medical assistance. Having arrived at the scene, paramedic Dave Spung tried a number of drugs to try and bring Mary back to consciousness, but nothing worked. The stricken schoolgirl was transferred into the back of an ambulance and rushed to the nearby Alexian Brothers Medical Centre. To the horror of Mary's parents, and despite the best efforts of doctors, she was pronounced dead at 9.56am. Edmund Donoghue, the Deputy Chief Medical Examiner for Cook County, noted that, though Mary's body was called in for an autopsy because of her age and the circumstances of her death, no hint of foul play was considered. This traumatic and devastating experience for the Kellermans would have been shock enough in isolation, but by the end of the day, Mary Kellerman would be known across the nation as the first of seven victims in a spree that would bring together five families under the most horrible circumstances. 27-year-old Adam Janus, a postal worker from the northwestern Chicago suburb of Arlington Heights, had taken a day off from work after feeling the beginnings of a cold. After picking his kids up from nursery, Janus stopped and bought a bottle of Tylenol Extra Strength capsules. Having returned home and eaten lunch with his children, Janus took a couple of the painkillers and within two minutes was lying unconscious on the kitchen floor. Rushed to the Northwest Community Hospital, Janus died early in the afternoon. His death was initially attributed to cardiac arrest by Thomas Kim, the medical director of the hospital's intensive care unit. Janus' parents, distraught wife Teresa and other close relatives returned to the house in Arlington Heights in a state of shock. The already distressing afternoon would take an even more tragic turn at around 5pm. As the grieving family members were discussing plans for Janus' funeral, his younger brother Stanley and Stanley's 19-year-old wife, also called Teresa, took some Tylenol capsules for a bad back and a headache. Within minutes both had collapsed and eight medical staff fought in vain to rouse Stanley and Teresa from unconsciousness. Their suspicions now raised, Dr Kim, Nurse Helen Jensen, who had been on duty at the time of Janus' admittance, Deputy Medical Examiner Donahue, and several members of the Arlington Heights Fire Department began to try and work out what linked the three mysterious deaths. At around the time the Janus family returned to the doomed house in Arlington Heights, Mary Lynn Rayner from Winfield, DuPage County, Illinois, took some extra-strength Tylenol. The 27-year-old mother had given birth to her fourth child less than a week before and was feeling under the weather. Arriving home and finding his wife collapsed on the floor, Ed Rayner immediately called for an ambulance. Mary was taken to Central DuPage Hospital, where she was pronounced dead at 9.30am the following day. Mary's use of extra-strength Tylenol would subsequently become something of a smoking gun in the investigations, as she was prescribed them at Central DuPage Hospital rather than purchasing them over the counter at a store. At around 6.30pm that evening in Lombard, also in DuPage County, Mary McFarland told fellow staff members at the Bell store where Mary was employed 
that she had a bad headache. Her brother and co-worker Jack Elliason recalled that Mary went into a back room to take some Tylenol and, just like the other victims, she collapsed shortly afterwards. John Milner, the commander of detectives at the police department in Elmhurst, suspected that she had been poisoned, but could have had no idea of just how big this case was. The final unfortunate to fall into the killer's twisted plot was 35-year-old United Airlines flight attendant Paula Prince. Arriving into O'Hare Airport on a flight from Las Vegas, Prince visited a Walgreens store and purchased another bottle of Tylenol that had been laced with cyanide. After missing a dinner date with her sister and failing to show up for work on Friday the 1st of October, Prince's body was discovered in her old town apartment. Up until this point, the Tylenol murders, individual murders, were completely unconnected, the murders in the different households. But gradually the authorities made the link um, and it was almost by chance, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was after Prince's body was found that the connection was made. And what had happened was two off-duty fire servicemen had been listening over the emergency service airwaves and they had heard the word Tylenol used again and again and again. So they figured they'd take that hunch because that's potentially something that's linking all these incidents together. Mm -hmm. So... They took this hunch to Nurse Jensen. Why Nurse Jensen? Well, she had been the nurse on duty when Janus had died. Right. And so she had been looking for a link as to why this, this kept happening. So they took it to her and she removed the pills from the house and submitted them for some testing. Okay. And what came back absolutely blew her out of the water because what was found in the pills were traces of cyanide. Now, I say traces. These levels, there was as much as 1,000 times the amount that could kill somebody. Wow. So this, these were laced with cyanide. So, so there's no, no doubt here that this was deliberate. It's not like a trace amount has leaked in from some outside process. Someone has deliberately poisoned the Tylenol capsules. Yeah. And obviously, as soon as uh, Chicago authorities caught on to this, uh, the FBI got involved and they codenamed the investigation Timers. They do like their code names, don't they, yeah. when it comes to these things? Yeah, Timers. I mean, yeah, I don't know, it's just, just a little bit of a clumsy... Timers. 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 Yeah. Uh, this is this is spelt T-Y-M-U-R-S, as in Tylenol murders. Not as in old timers. no. Well, and nothing to do with Ollie Murs either. Ollie Murs would never do something like that. Uh, yeah, for the record, Ollie Murs would never do something like that. <laughs> Ollie Murs is far too cool to do stuff like <laughs> drugs and anything like that. Um, definitely, yes. I agree with Denise. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Uh, what would you have called it? Merlinol. That just sounds like a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> But certainly when the news broke that this wasn't just a one-off thing, you know, there really was a connection with this. The media went absolutely bananas. I mean, I don't think there was such pandemonium since the Kennedy shooting 
with the media. Okay. By Monday, 4th October 1982, the cyanide murders were international news and the Chicago City Council passed a motion requiring tamper-proof packaging on all drugs to be sold in stores. Subsequently taken up nationwide in the Tylenol bill, these bottles and seals we take for granted nowadays were the direct result of the fallout from the Chicago Tylenol murders. Johnson & Johnson recalled 31 million bottles of Tylenol from shelves across America at a cost to the company of over $100 million. While these measures were implemented to protect and reassure the public, they also pointed to the very real possibility that the tampering of the bottles occurred somewhere in Johnson & Johnson's production line. This potentially bankrupting theory was, swiftly and somewhat dubiously, discredited by both the pharmaceutical company and the FBI. Eventually, eight tainted bottles containing 50 cyanide-laced capsules were recovered from five stores around the Chicago metropolitan area. The amount of contaminated bottles may have been much higher, but the true figure will never be known as citizens were advised to dispose of any extra-strength Tylenol they had in their homes. The story pushed in the media was that a lone madman was responsible for the murders, carrying out his or her sick deed by purchasing bottles of extra-strength Tylenol, lacing them with cyanide elsewhere, and then travelling around the metropolitan Chicago region and slipping the now-lethal painkillers back onto the shelves of stores picked at random. Over 100 officers from the law enforcement departments in Chicago and DuPage and Cook counties worked together with the FBI and the Illinois Attorney General, Tyrone Farner, to try and crack the case. More than a 1,000 potential leads were investigated, from crank callers claiming responsibility to terminated former employees of Johnson & Johnson. But nothing was sticking, and no firm evidence was forthcoming. Ed Rayner was brought in for questioning after it was posited that he may have poisoned his wife, for reasons unclear. Police worked to the theory that Rayner enlisted the help of friends to distribute tainted Tylenol around the region, in an effort to disguise the individual crime by making it just one of many. This outlandish theory was soon discarded, and years later the investigative team claimed Ed was never really a firm suspect in a move that highlights just how much straw-clutching was involved in hunting down the perpetrator, with so few tangible clues available. The first solid breakthrough came on Wednesday the 6th October, when an extortion letter arrived at the offices of Johnson & Johnson demanding $1 million to stop the Tylenol killings. The investigative team focused on uncovering who was behind the letter and eventually it was traced to James William Lewis, a New York City resident with work ties in Chicago. Arrested in December of 82, Lewis' handwriting was matched with this letter and another sent to the White House that threatened to bomb it and continue the poisonings. Lewis turned out to be a con man with a troubled past, who had done 20 years for extortion and credit card fraud. Frustratingly for the law enforcement agencies, no direct links to the Tylenol killings have ever emerged, with Lewis himself resolutely stating that he didn't commit the crimes. As Richard Breschek, the superintendent of the Chicago Police Department at the time, stated, 
it wasn't James Lewis. James Lewis was an asshole, an opportunist. Do you fancy listening to a bit of the ransom note that you sent? Oh, I definitely do. Oh, I'm glad you said that. Um, I'm kind of stealing the narrator's job a little bit here, but... Um, Will you read it in a voice? I'll, I'll, I don't know. I'm not sure if I can pull off an American oh. accent very successfully. I'm not even going to try. OK, so this is the ransom note. Gentlemen, as you can see, it is easy to place cyanide, both potassium and sodium, into capsules sitting on store shelves. And since the cyanide is inside the gelatin, it is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little and there will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity of these little capsules, then do nothing. So far, I have spent less than $50 and it takes me less than 10 minutes per bottle. If you want to stop the killing, then wire 1 million to bank account blah 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 at Continental Illinois Bank Chicago. Don't attempt to involve the FBI or local Chicago authorities with this letter. A couple of phone calls by me will undo anything you can possibly do. I mean, that's cool. But one thing I did notice, well, a couple of things. It's cool. Well, it's a cool ransom note. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably because I made it sound cool. He's pretty direct, you know. But there's a couple of things that, I don't know, I don't get. He says it takes so little, but we already know that there's about a thousand times as much as needed. That's true. Um, and also he says about it's easy to place these on the shelf. Mm-hmm. So is he buying these from somewhere else and then putting them back elsewhere? Um, well, he, he didn't do any of that, as we know, because it was uh, a complete hoax. So. No, but I mean the actual murderer. Okay, did, well, did he... yeah, possibly. I mean, that that's one of the, the, the methods he could have used. He could have gone into a shop taken the bottle, bought it legitimately, taken it away, filled it with his poison capsules and then replaced it on the shelf. But there was very limited security footage at the time of the stores that were involved. I suppose. And there was no one they saw on the cameras who was suspicious. So, yeah, that, I mean, it didn't necessarily, that didn't necessarily rule rule out the possibility that this was the method. But, um, yeah, there was nothing... Um, nothing to confirm this is the way the murderer carried out the poisonings. So there were a few named suspects. There was a chap called Roger Arnold. And this is this is where they were seemed to be really clutching at straws because Roger, Roger Arnold was uh, a 48-year-old dockhand who made some off-the-cuff remarks in a bar and one of his bar buddies reported him to the police and um, obviously he, he completely denied being involved in the Tylenol murders. But this is the, the kind of lead that, that the police were, were going for. They picked him up. They were able to arrest him because on a four-month-old, uh, I think it was an, an assault charge or something like that. They did the usual thing. They had something to charge him with and to hold him over, and then they could quiz him about possible involvement in the Tylenol murders. And it, it like certainly in retrospect, that seems completely ridiculous. Like yeah. it's over hearsay in a bar. You're arrested. Did you do this? Can you imagine if everybody who made an off-the-cuff remark at a bar got picked up for some well, we'd crime be, we'd, elsewhere? We'd probably be arrested in <laughs> the course in of, of doing these, <laughs> these podcasts for a start. Um, 
Um, there is there's someone else called uh, Laurie Dan who was uh, involved in a shooting rampage that um, eventually they, they um, took their own life. And of course, there's Ted Kaczynski because it kind of had the hallmarks of a Unabomber type thing. I think, I think you said, uh, mentioned early, earlier on, poisoning people uh, at random. You know, it has um, quite a similar MO to bombing a university or, or um, bombing an airline to make a statement. Yeah, it's very random. And I definitely, mm. when I very first looked at this case, one of the things that really jumped out at me before they even mentioned Ted Kaczynski was well, this sounds like something Ted Kaczynski would have done. Mm. And it's kind of, it's around the same time as well. It's not mm. too far off of when he was sending his bombs out. Mm. And, and anyway, they they did a lie detector test. Apparently, it was literally because this theory came out and they just wanted to eliminate him from their inquiries um, and his lie detector test came back um, negative. So that's as far as they could go. Okay, well, it's funny that I noticed there's one woman suspect in that in that pool. Mm. And one of the other things that struck me was that really poisoning is more of a woman's method. Mm-hmm. That's certainly, I certainly believe so anyway. And when I looked into it, there was an FBI report done from 1999 to 2012. And it was a collation of all the homicides that had happened in the US and actually they found that men tend to favour guns as a weapon of choice by 67%. Women also favour guns but when you look at the statistics for poisoning with men it's it's very low. Men hardly ever want to poison somebody. This is just just in the, the US or this uh, sort of inter- international survey? I believe this was a US survey um, but yeah I think for women poisoning came out at something like 2.5% of all murders. Like I say, for men, it was probably less than 1%. So it's it's strange that we do have a female suspect in there. Mm. But she was ruled out, so... And, of course, um, there's, there's a Mindhunter connection here. I'm talking Netflix, Mindhunter, uh, Johnny Douglas. Johnny Douglas. Oh, you love Johnny oh, Douglas. Oh, he's my favourite. Yeah. He is. Uh, and, like, I mean, he seems to... Honestly, the the guy seems to have some involvement in every major uh, U.S. case going, and even quite a lot of British cases yeah. have some something in the consultancy capacity in the, the Yorkshire Ripper, for example. Um, anyway, digress. Yes, yeah, so Johnny Douglas uh, made a profile of the Tylenol murderer. He makes he? a profile of everybody. Uh, yes, he does. He, he, he gets around, you know, he loves to get inside people's minds. <laughs> <laughs> We've got uh, Mind Hunter, more like Mind Hussy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what did, what did Johnny Douglas say about, about this guy? You tell me. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what he said. He did mention that the profile, he basically felt it was a male late 20s, early 30s, somebody who was a nocturnal loner type. And he also stated he felt that, as with most criminal cases, the offender was a Caucasian male. That's pretty... That's pretty broad. It is quite broad, yeah. Like, quite often he... he for example, the the Atlanta murders, mm. um, 
certain specifics about that case, um, he was... Uh, yeah, he said um, that the, the next murder, he would dump the body in the river. And that's exactly what the police were looking out for. And that's um, how they busted the perpetrator. Yeah, I think he said something about... There were things he had wanted to do with the Atlanta murders that he pushed forward with this case. So, for example, the perpetrator was targeting victims randomly, meaning he was dehumanising them. So he really wanted to make these victims human. He wanted their faces on the front page of newspapers... You know, so maybe the perpetrator could see that he'd killed a 12-year-old girl mm. and actually that meant something as opposed to just dishing out a few pills here and there. Mm. And so he really wanted to do that with the media. He wanted to manipulate the media into getting to work with him so they could draw this guy out. He thought that the perpetrator was going to go and visit the grave sites or go and visit the memorials. Um, and he also had a few people go on camera and to the news and try and say... Maybe this guy's been a victim of society and that's why he, he feels like he needs to act out. He certainly felt like this was more of an anger crime. Mm. There is like a final twist to this because uh, a chap called Scott Bartz, who was a former employee of Johnson & Johnson, who was let go from the company under what some people would describe as dubious circumstances, wrote a book called Tylenol Mafia, Marketing, Murder and Johnson & Johnson. And um, after three years of research and analysis of 8,000 documents of the Tylenol case, um, Bartz came up with the conclusion that the Tylenol must have been tampered with on the production line in Johnson & Johnson. And... Obviously, I mean, if this was proven, then this would be a horribly expensive um, civil case for Johnson & Johnson to answer. And Bartz is uh, saying that Johnson & Johnson used its the, the massive resources at its disposal to point the investigation to a lone psychopath rather than someone working within the company. As it turned out, the the media really applauded Johnson Johnson for its handling of the case because it cost them like a hundred million dollars at the time to remove all the Tylenol from the shelves and make sure that all the the tainted capsules were were destroyed. Today, that's several times several times that, and you know that's even for a big pharmaceutical company, that's no mean chunk of change. But the suggestion was that if this was within the company, that, that could have sunk Johnson & Johnson. Yeah, and I mean, I don't understand with Bartz's theory, if it had been somebody who had anything to do with Johnson & Johnson, I presume they have gone elsewhere or they've gone on to do other things. You know, why did they not continue doing what they were doing? Because they were getting away with it. Hmm. Um. And it just stopped. So well, I suppose there's, uh, in, in that case, if it, if it was a, a lone psychopath, I, I think what, what you're saying is um, that they would have gone on to kill other people, perhaps in the same method, or maybe they, they went to uh, another state and, and started killing yeah. people by different means, and perhaps they, they, they would have been caught and we would have found the Tylenol murderer by now. Yeah, it seems weird that we never 
Seems weird that we never caught them, but they had such a I don't want to say perfect, but they had they had a quite a watertight way of surpassing the FBI and every other kind of authority. Yeah. One one of the one of the points that um, Barnes makes is there's no way that someone outside the actual packaging place in Johnson and Johnson could have tampered with the Tylenol that was prescribed from the hospital. Um, of course, it, it could have been someone in the hospital who had tampered with the Tylenol there and then also gone outside to the stores and tampered with the the, the Tylenol on, on the shelves. There are just so many different angles to it, this. It is, the possibilities are really... It's quite an open-ended case. I mean, obviously it's un, un, unsolved. It's an unsolved case, but even for unsolved cases, the, the police and the authorities, the FBI, they were really clutching at straws. They didn't have anything on anyone. That's quite scary to think about it, really. I think I'm just going to go live in the woods from now on and treat my headaches with berries and sticks. I think you can actually do that. Willow, Willow's got aspirin. Aspirin, not paracetamol. Uh, there we go. There we that's, go. that's the ticket. All right, we'll go that way then. Willow. <laughs> Over 30 years later, what hope is there of catching the Tylenol murderer? Johnson & Johnson's $100,000 reward remains unclaimed. And in 2013, the FBI formally stood down from leading the investigations into the killings. These perfect murders occurred at a time when drug packaging was rudimentary, financial transactions were largely cash-based, ruling out a paper trail, and surveillance technology was only just becoming a regular sight in shops and on our streets. None of the stores that did have security cameras in operation at the time turned up any footage of a lone madman acting suspiciously around the shelves where pharmaceuticals were stocked. No physical evidence linking anyone to the murders has ever been uncovered, and Bartz's distribution line theory has yet to be followed up on. While Ed Rayner and Roger Arnold's names are no longer mentioned by investigators when discussing the possible identity of the Tylenol murderer, James William Lewis and Unabomber Ted Kaczynski have, some might say conveniently, both come back into the frame in recent years. In 2009, the Cambridge, Massachusetts home of Lewis and his wife was searched. Boxes, files and a computer were seized. Lewis and his wife provided DNA samples to authorities and the convicted extortionist repeated his denial of being the Tylenol murderer. No charges have been brought against him. Similarly, Ted Kaczynski voluntarily submitted a DNA sample in 2011, after the FBI once again raised the possibility that the Unabomber may have been behind the killings. Like Lewis, no charges have been forthcoming, and the FBI stated they simply wanted to rule Kaczynski out of the picture once and for all. The case is now jointly headed by the local police departments where the killings occurred. And Arlington Heights Police Commander Mike Hernandez stated in 2013 that the investigation is ongoing and it continues to be active. The possibility that the tampering may have taken place somewhere in the distribution and repackaging line is still alive, though Johnson & Johnson wholly deny the claims laid out in Bart's book. 